Support for I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere comes from MX Publishing. With the largest catalog of new Sherlock Holmes books in the world, new novels, biographies, graphic novels, and short story collections about Sherlock Holmes. Find them at mxpublishing.com. And by the Wessex Press, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wessexpress.com. And from listeners like you, who support us through Patreon. Bonus material, thank you gifts, and more await at patreon.com slash I Hear of Sherlock. I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, Episode 281, The Lantern's Dance. I hear of Sherlock everywhere since you became a strong In a world where it's always 1895, it's I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. A podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jack in office. The game's afoot as we interview authors, editors, creators, and other prominent Sherlockians on various aspects of the great detective in popular culture. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Bert Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Hello and welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Walder. And Bert, have you got your lantern lit? Uh, my lantern are you, is... Are you lit? The smoking lamp is not lit because no one smokes anymore except Ed Pettit. A smoking lantern. Hmm. Hmm. So we don't have that lit anymore, but I do have the next best thing. I do have my pen light flashlight. Well, you can, you can light the way to this episode, which is going to be a fun one. We have Laurie R. King back with us. This is Laurie's first time with us by herself. She has bravely taken the step to join us and speak about her creation, Mary Russell and Sherlock Holmes. So it's going to be uh, illuminating and fun. And uh, we will look forward to chatting with her about her latest book in the series. Just uh, show notes are available at uh, IHearOfSherlock.com as well as in the podcast app you happen to be using. We've got links to various things we're going to be talking about, including items in the news. That'll be after the interview. And a link to our Patreon page where you can support us for as little as $1 a month. And that goes to... Uh, keeping the lights on here. And it also gives all of our Patreon supporters the ability to listen to the show without ads. An added benefit, I would say. And we also would like to remind you that we have a quiz in this episode, as we do in every episode. It's available after the interview, so you want to stay tuned for that. We give you two lines of poetry, and we ask you to guess which Sherlock Holmes story we're talking about. We've had a lot of participation recently, and I don't think there are 
terribly difficult to figure out, so there's an opportunity for everyone to participate and potentially win a prize. Before we get to the interview, a couple of items of note from our listeners. Uh, the first one came in an email to us from our friend Sean Farrell. Excuse me. From our friend Sean Wright. <laughs> you remember we were talking about fezes in the last mm. episode, Bert? Oh, yes, yes. And we even used a, an image of Edward Hardwick as Dr. Watson putting on his fez before lighting up a cigar. And what did... What, what, Sean had something to tell us about smoking caps and fezes and whatnot. Well, he pointed out that our late friend John Farrell was uh, the proud owner and wearer of quite an elaborate embroidered smoking cap, and that the smoking cap... Well, he told us, first of all, the difference between the fez and the smoking cap which I'm sure all of our sartorially informed listeners already know, so it doesn't bear repeating, of course. It's just insulting to repeat that. But, um, and then told us, uh, pointed to a couple of instances in the canon where the smoking cap seems to have appeared. Yeah, it looks like uh, it was in The Dying Detective. Hmm. It's a low and circular cap that was worn by Culverton Smith. If you look at the illustrations for The Dying Detective, that should be apparent. So, um, looks like we should be focusing ourselves on smoking caps, not on fezes. <laughs> uh, but uh, John, uh, I mean, uh, Sean goes on to, <laughs> to tell us we are both a wealth of information and hilarity. Oh, really? Such a pleasure to listen to the two of you having fun with the canon. Well, we try. And then uh, regarding the Gillette lunch, which we reported on in the last episode, we weren't at the event, so uh, we were a little, we were kind of flying blindly there, but uh, Shana Carter wrote in uh, to give us some details about what happened at the Gillette lunch. Ray Betzner uh, made the announcement that Francine Kitts was the recipient of the Susan Rice Mentorship Award. This is an annual award that's given to a Sherlockian who encourages and welcomes people into the fold of uh, Sherlockiana. And Francine Kitts is the recipient from uh, this year. And uh, there was a, a skit that was performed by the three student players. And uh, this was with Curtis Armstrong as Sherlock Holmes, Ashley Polisek as a hilariously jaded Mrs. Hudson, uh, Ken Ludwig as the narrator and Holmes's bust, and uh, Ray Betzner in a silent role as Colonel Moran. And that was followed by the Friends of Bogies of Baker Street, who presented mm. uh, their annual play, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, and in this instance, he was uh, combined with uh, the James Bond universe. We had Paul Singleton as Holmes, Sarah Montague as Mrs. Moneypenny, Andrew Jaffe as Q, and Lee Shackelford as Blofeld. So that explains why you had a large bald man stroking a, what looked like a stuffed rabbit. 
and some photos from that. So always fun. Lori R. King is the award-winning best-selling author of a new series featuring San Francisco Police Department cold case inspector Raquel Lang, the contemporary Kate Martinelli series, the historical Stuyvesant and Gray stories, five acclaimed standalone novels, and 18 books in the Mary Russell Mysteries series. Together with Les Klinger, Lori has edited The Grand Game, Volumes 1 and 2, as well as A Study in Sherlock, The Echoes of Sherlock Holmes, In League with Sherlock Holmes, and In the Company of Sherlock Holmes. Lori is the recipient of two Anthony Awards, a Nero, a McCavity, a Lambda, an Edgar, and was named the Grand Master by the Mystery Writers of America in 2022. Lori received her investiture, the Red Circle, in the Baker Street Irregulars in 2010. She lives in Northern California, where she's at work on the next Mary Russell Mystery. Lori King, welcome back to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Oh, thank you. It's so nice to have you here on your own this time. The training wheels are off, so to speak. <laughs> so, um, are, are you referring to Les Klinger as my training wheels? <laughs> yeah, well, who, whose training wheels isn't Les, really? <laughs> Always nice to have him as a sidecar, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, the last time you were here, way back on episode 105, you were talking about Echoes of Sherlock Holmes, which is a book that you and Les edited together. Yeah. But um, I think what we're most interested here is uh, talking with you about the Mary Russell series. But in order to do that, I think we want to go back even further with you and understand where you first met Sherlock Holmes. Is there anything before Mary Russell? <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> well, I'm one of those who basically discovered Holmes as an adult. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that everybody reads The Speckled Band and Hound of the Baskervilles when they're in high school. Um, aren't those sort of the basic ones? But I started playing with the idea of what would that extraordinary mind look like in a different setting? <clears throat> and instead of, you know, in, instead of Holmes being a Victorian male, what would that mind look like if it were housed in a young female 20th century person instead? And that's where that's where Mary Russell came from. Um, <clears throat> I started writing the idea of um, when when would we meet her? When would she meet him? And I thought, well, the best time would be um, when <laughs> when Sir Arthur is finished with him. So at the beginning of the Great War, which is the last of the settings of the Conan Doyle stories. Um, young Mary Russell is wandering across the Sussex Downs and nearly steps on Sherlock Holmes, who is, uh, you know, watching bees, because what else does a beekeeper do? And I, I started writing, <clears throat> I was 15 when I first met Sherlock Holmes, 
uh, is the first line in the book, and re- <laughs> realized that I knew next to nothing about Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> so, which which was kind of a problem if he was going to be a character in the book. So I, I, I popped out to my local bookstore and bought, uh, I think it was the Dover edition mass market paperback, a very, very thick, hmm. all the collected works in two volumes of the small size paperbacks in tiny, tiny print that I don't know that I'd be able to actually read now. And just sat down and read my way straight through them um, in a way that, as I said, I hadn't since I was in school, which was a number of years before. And I, I found it fascinating because he was a character who had so much more dimension to him than I had expected. I mean, when you when you remember something that you read when you were a child – you kind of strip down all the complexity and you think of him as being, you know, the thinking machine, right? Who just doesn't like people and bosses around um, people like uh, his really only friend, uh, Dr. Watson, and the long-suffering Mrs. Hudson. But when you open the stories as an adult, you discover a person who is who is much more complex than that, who has this passion for justice, who occasionally gives out unexpected glimpses of humor and whimsy. And there, I mean, I, I found them fascinating as you know, as a reader and, and ultimately as a writer of how, how complicated the character was. Well, that's a, that has to be one of the most unique journeys we've heard here. I mean, everybody's got their own unique story, obviously, but um, to hear how you approached Holmes in adulthood. um, (laughs) Having already decided to steal him. (laughs) (laughs) But well, you, you know what's what's different there, of course, when you encounter the characters as an adult, is that your own tools and moral sense and values and understanding of people and thoughts about how the world works are are just so much more complex than than a, a much younger person, particularly someone who's encountering Holmes in the fifth grade or the sixth grade. But but what echoed for you was it was it Holmes's sense of justice that that um, you really resonated to? Oh, I think partly, yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know that the fact that he the cases that he works matter to him. They're not just intellectual puzzles, uh, and I think so many people think of Holmes as being just somebody who's clever and who likes to figure out puzzles, but doesn't really care about the people involved. And that's not the character that I saw in those stories. I saw a character who is driven by the need for justice and setting things aright. But I also found, and I I think the thing that made it possible to write the character for me going forward, these touches of humor 
that were quite unexpected. Uh, you know, when, when, when poor Watson comes into the room and it's so filled with smoke, he has to fling open the window. And, and Holmes says, yes, I found that a concentrated atmosphere helps the mind to concentrate. <laughs> and then goes on to say, I haven't yet decided to get into a box to think, but that, and it, you know, I mean, that's such an absurd thing and so utterly unexpected, that sort of, that sort of humor um, that I thought, yeah, this is, this is a character I could actually live with. <laughs> I mean, I mean, not literally, I, I think we'd end up murdering Holmes in most of us, but, um, <laughs> but literarily I could live with him. So talk to us a little bit about where this concept of Mary Russell came from. I mean, I know you, you kind of pinpointed the time when she would work with respect to Holmes, but um, maybe it was part of your, uh, your writing journey beforehand because you've written female characters before. Um, uh, certainly, uh, you know, in some of your modern mystery series, the Kate Martinelli series, um, but talk a little bit about the evolution and birth of Mary Russell as a character. Well, the only book I had written before <clears throat> The Beekeeper's Apprentice, I started some years before writing a book that was a sort of futuristic novel um, that was set in a time in the not-too-distant future when various catastrophes had um come together to rob the world of most males uh, which sorry about this guys but um mm -hmm. i kill off all the men <laughs> we understand <laughs> uh, you know some of my best friends are men but for the purposes of the story i thought it was really interesting and i got how oh, halfway into the story and realized I had no idea what I was doing with it and so put it down because I was a young mother and I was very busy and and I didn't really have time to spend on that. So when some years later I started writing again, <clears throat> I thought I would write something that had more structure to it, that is a mystery. Uh, you know, my mysteries have a certain kind of story that you need to tell and I, I found it a comfortable idea that it would guide me in putting a story together because with when you're writing science fiction they can go anywhere just absolutely there's no structure involved at all whereas with the mystery you have to tell the the story in some logical fashion so i i had the idea of this young woman who has this extraordinary mind and because it's always more interesting to put two similar but different things near each other so you can do a compare and contrast, I thought it was more interesting to have her actually work with Holmes rather than, for example, be a homicide detective with the San Francisco Police Department in the 1980s. And so that's where she and Holmes came together. Um, and I started, I started writing with The Beekeeper's Apprentice. Um, I wrote a second one, which became the third in the series. And after that, when neither of them had sold, um, I 
decided to write a more contemporary series, and that's where Kate Martinelli came in. So the first book published was indeed uh, a contemporary cop story, but it was, in fact, the third one that I actually wrote. Mm. So you must have gotten your inspiration for mysteries by reading other mysteries, and you just told us you didn't really get into Sherlock Holmes until you began thinking about this. Well, so who are some of the other mystery writers or mystery titles that you were fond of? Well, of course, this would have been the late 80s. I, I think I started The Beekeeper's Apprentice in 87, maybe. And uh, so I was reading pretty much whoever was active at the time, Sue Grafton, obviously. But I read a lot of I read a lot of the Golden Age writers as well. Dorothy Sayers, Josephine Tay, Marjorie Allingham. And and I think you can kind of feel those in the voice of Mary Russell. She is she is English American, but she writes very British. And I think that her overly precise and uh, and deliberate voice is is very english rather than strictly american um and that probably comes from you know especially sayers and and josephine tay so yeah that's where that's where she comes from that's where the inspiration lies and the fact that those golden age particularly the women of the golden age um, of crime writing, had a way of focusing on the story, but allowing the personalities of the people to come in as well. Maybe not so much Agatha Christie. Uh, her, she is much more focused on the story itself. But the others, I think, the, the voices of the characters... Um, permeates all the, the the story in a way that strict whodunits don't necessarily don't necessarily have. So, hmm. was writing something you always thought you would get to or be? Do we? Are you one of those people who you know was a, as a kid you were thinking up stories and um, reading voraciously and. Well, I, I, I did, but because I had never met a writer, um, I mean, nowadays, I think a lot of kids are introduced to the idea of being a writer by having people come to their schools or, you know, doing research into the, the authors they like or something like that. But I was an enormous reader, but it always felt to me like those books on the shelves, it's just sort of been <laughs> placed there by God or something. And I, I couldn't imagine actual human beings having anything to do with them until I became a writer myself. So, um, no, I, I think, I think I, I had never thought of being a writer until I started writing these things. I was in my 30s at the time. 
I'm not a very fast learner, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what was so what was the spark? I mean, there you are in your 30s. You know, you've got a life established. You're on your way back from the market, and suddenly, you say to yourself, you know, I've got a I yeah. got a pencil here. Yeah, I do. I do. Um, it was probably an accumulation of things. Um, my my kids both were in school for the first time. My son was in preschool. Um, my, I didn't have a full-time job. I didn't have a job because my, I was married to an academic and <laughs> people who have 10 weeks off over the summer tend to take off and do things over the summer which people with normal jobs can't sort of tell their employer, by the way, I'm going to be gone all summer because we're going to India or England. Or <laughs> so I didn't have a job. At some point I was going to have to get one when the kids got a little older. But I was, so I was home I, as a stay-at-home mom. I had three, three entire mornings a week on my own. I mean, it was, it was a lot of free time. <laughs> And I think that I think that the Jeremy Brett series must have been on the television, the Granada TV um, Sherlock Holmes series, because Holmes was on my mind in a way that normally would not have been. Um, I, something must have planted it in my mind, and I I think it must have been that. And the it came together with this idea that. Holmes gets credit for doing things that in a woman would be called female intuition <laughs> and, and sort of dismissed because it's, isn't that just guessing? And I, I think those, those various things came together with this idea of having someone who can actually get the better of Sherlock Holmes from time to time. Hmm. So that's, Really interesting, you know. And has that sort of shaped? I mean, did was Mary a character who sort of popped up to you, fully formed, or has? Because one of the things, you know, in your latest book, the you know the publishers weekly, I think, have commented on this, this and proposed some parallels between your life and Mary Russell's life. But is this a character who sort of was fully formed to you, or is she sort of? evolved in a way that surprised you over time? Her, her story has evolved. Yeah. But I, I think it's amazing how her voice was there from the very beginning. That first sentence of, I was 15 when I first met Sherlock Holmes. Um, that is exactly what I wrote the first day that I sat down to write her. And it's, it is extremely rare and precious for a writer to have a character who just introduces themselves fully formed. And this was one of those rare occasions that Russell simply was there. Hmm. I like that. So you've got the two of them working together, Sherlock Holmes, who would have been in his... 60s at this point, early 60s. I think when they meet, um, there's a, it's a very complicated set of, um, of chronology 
and is based on the glorious God adventure and some other things that I, I worked at. But my, my Holmes is a bit younger than the, than the traditional um, accepted age. So he's 57 when they first meet. Oh, okay. And she's 15. Yeah. And um, eventually over the course of the, the series, uh, they become um, more than just working partners. They become romantic partners. That's, <laughs> that's not typically done with Sherlock Holmes. And, you know, we yeah. saw William Gillette, of course, famously write to Conan Doyle, say, may I marry Holmes um, back in 1899. And, yeah. and Doyle gave his blessing. <laughs> so it was okay. Marry it, him, or murder him. And I have to say, I, I can, I can under, understand the urge to murder him occasionally. <laughs> so far, I, so far I haven't. No. Um, well, yeah. he's, he's reaching his old age, uh, in the series. So, you know, natural causes yeah. and all that, you yeah. know, um, but well, it, talk to us a little bit about that decision and the evolution of the relationship and, and how this all works. Yeah, it's, I, it is tricky. I, I fully acknowledge the fact that from the outside, it, it sounds really creepy that you have you know, this, this old guy who marries this young woman. And I fully understand people who are put off by the whole thing. If you'd said to me before I wrote them that this is what was going to happen, I would have said, oh, really? <laughs> but, I mean, there's various things that are, that are happening in the story. And for one thing, if they're going to be partners, it just felt odd to me to have them as working partners without opening the doors to an emotional connection as well. Because I think one of the things I wanted to do, and I didn't do it at first in the early ones, but eventually I wanted to, to allow this character of Sherlock Holmes to develop in ways that Arthur Conan Doyle either didn't or couldn't. Um, you know, Conan Doyle, and not just romantically, but as a person faced with a hugely changed society of post-war, post-World War I, Conan Doyle could never envision Holmes after the beginning of the Great War. And so the stories written afterwards were all set before, of course, I thought that was selling Holmes short. I thought that someone with that flexible, that supple and inquisitive a mind would, would not allow himself to be just ushered off the stage because Britain changed so hugely uh, under the influences of the Great War. I thought that Sherlock Holmes as a person would grow and develop and move into the new world uh, in, in ways that Conan Doyle couldn't, couldn't envision. So that, that's kind of part of it. Um, there's, there's also the, the fact that in that period such a huge percentage of the marriageable young men 
that would normally be, you know, the fathers of the next generation, were just not there. Yeah. They were either dead uh, in France or under the sea, or they were so disastrously injured that they were not husband material. So you had this generation of young women who had to either choose not to marry or to look outside their normal, uh, you know, possibilities. So you had a change in the kinds of marriages that took place in that period after the Great War. And, and the third thing that enters into that is the fact that I was married to a man 30 years older than I was. And I found it, <laughs> I found his age less of a, uh, less of a problem than the fact that he had been born and raised in India. And the, the fact that he was 30 years older than me really made little difference compared to the fact that he spent his childhood in a, in a boys' school in the Himalayas or he, um, he didn't learn to drive until he was an adult and he had grown up around, um, you know, <laughs> co cobras and, and rabid dogs. And, you know, the fact that he came from such a hugely different background, um, the age difference was a relatively minor consideration. So all these things that, you know, that it seemed to be that the partnership between these two people would would not be an, the kind of partnership you would normally see in any case. And it, I just allowed them to go ahead and it seems to work. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get too many people saying that they're creeped out by the whole thing, so... <laughs> well, no, it certainly does seem to work. But, you know, in that sort of environment, when you have someone coming from the other side of the moon, you know, you've got these two very different cultures. Um, a lot of different things can happen, but also, you know, there's an element of intrigue. I mean, there's a lot of curiosity and trying to find common ground between this experience and that experience. Is that a factor in the relationship that you've observed developing between Holmes and Mary Russell? Does Holmes, yeah. does Holmes admire her? Oh, I think he does, yes. Uh, I think he's often puzzled by her. Um, the two of them often look at each other like, what planet are you from? Um, but yeah, I think their, their minds are very similar, but their experiences and, and histories are, are different. And the new one, Lantern's Dance, has, uh, has a background story of Holmes that I, you know, one of, the, one of the funny things about the character when you look at Sherlock Holmes from the point of view of a writer is that you have this immensely vivid and three-dimensional character. I mean, everyone in the world recognizes Sherlock Holmes. And yet Conan Doyle tells us almost nothing about him. Tells us we don't don't know anything about his backstory other than uh, he has a brother seven years older who is important in the government. He comes from a family of of country squires in England. 
and that his grandmother was a sister of the artist Vernet, um, which whichever artist Vernet you might choose to, and. And, oh, and that he, he went to university, although it never says whether he um, actually graduated, which university it was, or what he was reading. So, <laughs> so we know nothing else about this character that we all know. And, and so I found that so fascinating that you can write a character who's so filled with life, and yet you know nothing about him. So this this the book that I've done now is to fill in a little bit of that that backstory. Um, not I think that the the mystery is completely gone when you when you get there, but um, I I I thought you need to find out something about um, Holmes other than just his position in either the Conan Doyle stories or these books. So you have a son, and you have a background with Irene Adler, and you have this um, th- this other representatives of the Vernet family and so forth. So without giving away any spoilers, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Stick with us. We'll be back after this brief word from our sponsor. If you aren't yet signed up for email updates from MX Publishing, well, you're missing out. There are lots of freebies available for fans of MX Publishing that come out regularly. Every Friday, Steve MX sends out Thank Homes It's Friday. And the latest one has top picks of 2023. If you use the code 2023 at checkout, you'll be able to get a discount on some of these titles. And if you sign up for the email updates, you'll also have access to audio codes for free audiobooks from MX Publishing. Titles like Sherlock Holmes, The Coronet Conspiracy by James Patrick Heatherly, The Selected Cases of Dr. Watson by Martin Daly, and Sherlock Holmes and the Adventure of the Bedeviled Foot by Thomas Kent Miller. Also, you'll be the first to know about new titles as they're released in 2024. Titles like The Devil at Prayers by Elora Lawthorne, Sherlock Holmes and the Barnyard Caper by Danielle Calloway, Sherlock Holmes Eliminate the Impossible by Paula Hammond, and Sherlock Holmes Five Miles of Country by Gretchen Altebeff. Make sure you're signed up for email updates from our friends at MX Publishing. Just go to mxpublishing.com and register today. Yeah, it's fascinating that Holmes is still something of a blank canvas because there are so many gaps. I I guess he's not quite a blank canvas. He's more of a framework, uh, an architecture on which to build. Um, and there's plenty to, to fill in there. So uh, tell us about the Lantern's Dance, uh, where we find ourselves, what's going on, and what readers who uh, are interested in this series should expect. It's always, a, it's always a conundrum with a series, especially once you start getting into the double digits of a series, how you keep it interesting. And one of the things that I did, because I, <laughs> I I didn't want to get bored myself, I started moving them around the world. And so from the very earliest books, in fact, 
Beekeeper's Apprentice has a section where they have to leave England for a time and they go off to what was then Palestine, Israel. So um, beginning with the very first book, they are traveling about the countryside. They're not just in Sussex or just in London. And by the time you get to Lantern Stance, which is number 18, they have been to Morocco and Monaco and the Riviera, and they've been to um, they've been to Japan and to the United States, and basically, you know, sort of all over the place. And they end up the the last book they were in Romania, um, looking at a, a small problem with vampires with the Queen of Romania. <laughs> in Transylvania. And they, they now, Lantern Stanza opens when they are arriving at the house of the son that was introduced in a, a book, a few books back, that Sherlock Holmes and Irene Adler had um, when the, when, during the great hiatus, that Holmes did not know he had a son until the, the young man was in his 20s. So this is a reintroduction to that storyline that that is extra canonical <laughs> but is um, is is in the the Russell stories. And the the mystery the mystery this particular story begins when they get to the house and find that they have fled because there's some mysterious threat and Holmes goes shooting off to look for his son and leaving Russell behind because she has a sore foot and she finds a journal that she then has to decipher and that's the that's the sort of beginning of the whole book is partly set near in a village near Paris and partly this journal that uh, that takes her back through the words of a young woman in India in the early part of the um, of the nineteenth century. I, I mean, for anyone who's into uh, that time period, um, in addition to that locale, it's a magical combination. Mm. And there's there's a long discussion in. Uh, Holmesian scholarship about the the influence of India on Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know where where this uh, where this came from. The fact that he has a Persian slipper. The fact that he meditates on a cushion. The fact that he likes curry. The, the fact that he you know <laughs> studies um, Indian tobaccos. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, and as with all Holmesian scholarship, it's somewhat whimsical, but but very solemn in a tongue-in-cheek sort of way. So this is this is in a way uh, adding to that discussion of um, what is it with Holmes in India anyway? <laughs> what 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 is it what is it um, for you? Um... About India and history. I mean, I, I mean, beyond your late husband, of course. But um, what what have you? What, what about you know the culture and the experience and the history and the values and the sense of the world um, have, have has been important to you? 
Well, from the point of view of these books, of course, India India made England as a as an empire. Um, India fed into the British Empire in a way that none of the other colonies did. It established the identity of uh, of England in the world. Um, invariably, inevitably, there were sins committed, and England has much to answer for, and 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 probably never will really establish itself as an innocent. But the the history between India and England is is essential to understand what the Victorian world was. And Holmes is Victorian, down to his bones. He is a Victorian gentleman. And without India in the background, none of that makes sense. Yeah. And certainly when we think of, you know, Watson's own evolution as a character, um, you know, his first marriage, well, first that we know of, <laughs> that is, uh, <laughs> was brought about particularly because of India and uh, yep. what a strong flavor that played in the sign of four. Um, well, I think just the fact that he and Holmes met was due to a Giselle bullet um, that yeah. uh, otherwise, I mean, otherwise he wouldn't have been knocking around London looking for a, a cheap place to live. Would That's he? true. <laughs> Very true. So uh, Laurie, as you've, uh, continued to write this series, and gosh, it's now been 30 years in publication. Yep. Uh, happy anniversary, by the way. Thank you. Um, I mean, what a what an extraordinary um, legacy you have here. But talk to us a little bit about the initial response you heard from Sherlockians. And, and maybe how you discovered that there even were Sherlockians. And because uh, I know there is a very uh, active and rabid uh, group of Mary Russell fans out there. Talk to us a little bit about the fandom. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, the fans. Um, I, when I started this series – and as I said, I, I started writing it in the late 80s. It started being published in the early 90s. Um, it was obviously before the internet was going. And so I was aware that there was Sherlockian scholarship because I, as an academic myself, I did research. And so I would, you know hunker down in the library and come up with collections of essays on Holmesian scholarship. Um, you know, the, the Dorothy Sayers, and uh, all kinds of essays on Sherlock Holmes. So I had met the idea of, um, of the game, of the, the Sherlockian studies early on. I don't know that I really then took the next step and thought about where it was now because of course these were a number of these were more classic collections um, rather than contemporary ones 
And I, I didn't then go on to say, okay, so if people are still writing these, they must continue to be um, feeling passionate about these things. So I kind of living in my own little corner of the world down in Watsonville, California, uh, was quite insulated from anything uh, even nearer to uh, Sherlockian science or the BSI. <laughs> so that when I first published, uh, the, the first Russell book was published, uh, the first couple of them, um, there was uh, the early days of the uh, internet had a lot of, uh, what were they? They weren't called chat groups, but they were like message boards. And one of the early ones was the Hounds of the Internet, which apparently just erupted in flames over the idea that I would write this young woman uh, pairing her with the great detective. And I, I suspect that they thought I was going to start writing romance. I mean, I think they would have been happy enough with just straight out Sherlockian erotica, but I think the, I think the one thing they couldn't the, the, the idea that I would be writing Sherlock Holmes into romance was more than they would they would up with put. Um, and I, but I, you know, I lived on a farm in Watsonville, and these were the days when my modem was a little box that you plugged your phone into and you laid it onto, and it warbled. You, you know, I mean, <laughs> this is this is. The dark ages when it comes to communication online. So I was completely unaware that the, you know that the Sherlockian world was um, was infuriated at the nerve of this this king woman with with, with her Mary Russell character. <laughs> so, and it wasn't until years later that I discovered that people had really been upset over the whole thing. But by that time, I had already met people who were you know, active uh, Peter Blau, I met early on, um, Les Klinger slightly later. But I think enough people looked at what I was doing with the stories and realized that I had a huge amount of respect, um, both for Sherlock Holmes and for Arthur Conan Doyle's work. And I think they were willing to extend, um, you know, a, a bit of a leeway for me until it became obvious that I wasn't writing, um, you know, gir girly romances. <laughs> so so I, I was forgiven. And then they eventually asked me to give a paper at the BSI dinner. And I, I delivered what I, I, I claim is the definitive, <laughs> definitive paper on Watson's war wound. Um, Tackling the immortal question of he he one place refers to it as being in his leg and one place it's in his shoulder and how can it be a bullet and it's very simple in that these were Giselle bullets that were put together over uh, campfires at night um, you know melting scraps of metal and they often tended to break in midair and so therefore there was a bullet and two wounds. So therefore, <laughs> so 
The PSI was so impressed with this erudite scholarship that they asked me to become a member. And so I, I am now officially accepted into the otherwise predominantly manly breast of the <laughs> Baker Street Irregulars as the Red Circle. <laughs> <laughs> well, a reference to the war wound, no doubt, you know. the uh, Exactly. Yeah, the Red Circle. <laughs> But, you know, to be fair to our listeners, we should say that your investiture in the Baker Street Irregulars, which I guess was what? It's like 15 years ago now, isn't it? Right. It like yeah. I think it was 20, like 2010. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's nothing compared to um, you, you won an Edgar, I think, for your for your first book, which was the, was the Kate Martinelli book. Right. Right. A Great Talent was the first one. It won the, won the Edgar. And you've won an Agatha and a Nero and a McCavity and a Lambda uh -huh. and the Crazy Memorial. Uh, you must have some mantle. And I, I am a grandmaster. Yes. Wow. Like, yeah, so absolutely. There you go. So not only a BSI, but a grandmaster. There are not many of us in that club. That's impressive. No. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Wow. When when the when the Watsonville, California Authors Society meets, there's probably a room for only your chair at the table. Uh, it's it's not a really big big table, no. <laughs> it's, more, uh, it's more like a, a small tray that you'd put up in front of the TV for dinner, probably. Well, I, I live in Santa Cruz now, and it's a little bigger. Oh, good, good. There you go. So um, talk to us a little bit about uh, the the fans that you've seen come out of the woodwork thanks to this, you know, 30-year series that you're uh, still writing for. Uh, I, the, you meet the most interesting people who write you letters. Um, the, at the very beginning, I started getting these lengthy typed letters from a woman in, I think she lived in Toronto. Um, I mean, fascinating letters, uh, very, very erudite and, you know, taking, taking the whole matter terribly seriously. And I think that set the pattern for, um, for the, the fandom is that they are, they are an inquisitive lot. They are often very educated. They are, um, full of gr good humor. Um, madly energetic i have i have four events uh planned during this year that are day-long celebrations of the beekeeper's apprentice um one of them in santa cruz the other three will be connected with the three mystery conferences that take place left coast in seattle malice domestic in dc and nashville as we'll see bouchicon and in each of them, we're going to have speakers and projects and um, and fans are doing all kinds of fun things that we're going to be giving away. And I'm so, I'm so looking forward to it. It's the sort of thing that you think, yeah, well, yes, it's promotion, but eh, it's also a lot of fun. So, um, but those are, those are, I'm really looking forward to seeing what the fans come up with at those. Oh, you've, you've found your fans and they've found you. It's a wonderful you, combination. Yeah. Have have you had any fans who, you know, one of the things we were talking about a minute ago in the early days of the internet, you know, before everyone discovered these communities, 
fan fiction was, you know, tiny and isolated. Yeah. Have, are there fans who would like to take, how do I want to ask this? Are there fans who would like to take Mary Russell and Sherlock Holmes into a, <laughs> into avenues and directions that have not occurred to you? There is a dedicated um, fan fiction site, yes, called Letters of Mary, which you you can you can apply for admission and she will allow you in. Um, they trade stories, and yes, if you are asking about um, what they do behind closed doors, there are probably any number of those stories. I tend not to read them any more than I. I also don't tend to read Sherlockian pastiches because I don't want to get other people's stories confused with my own. Um, I, you know, I, I am often asked to do uh, blurbs for people who are writing Sherlockian stories, and I, and I always have to say I'm really sorry. I, I can't read them because I don't want to think, oh, yes, that was my story. I can write about X or Y and then realize mm-hmm. afterwards that, no, it was something that, I, that snuck into my brain after reading um, someone else's. So I'm, <laughs> I'm looking forward to retiring from writing Mary Russell because then I can read everybody's stories. But until then, <laughs> until then, I have to put them on the back shelf and say, "Yeah, I can't read them yet." <laughs> oh, good. What, yeah. what about collaborations? What about dramatizing um, the Laurie R. King canon? Has that has that been explored over the years? Do you have thoughts about that? Oh yeah, I, I think we've um, we've talked to various people over the years, and we had uh, we had one. If you're talking about movies and things, um, yeah, we had one production company that was very interested, and then unfortunately, um, COVID came, and everything just was up in the air, and it just didn't work out. So you know, at some point, I'm sure, but it's um, I because because they are such different media, you know, a book and something on a screen. I don't really have a lot of problem with the idea of something on a screen. Uh, you know, you always hope that they're going to treat it with uh, with some respect and understanding. But they're so different. Um, I, I think that it would be fun to see what other people do. Um, I'm, I'm also talking to uh, someone about doing a a graphic novel adaptation of Beekeeper, which I think would be vast fun. Mm. So <laughs> it would be it would be remarkable if one of your Mary Russell stories was brought to the screen and Millie Bobby Brown played Mary <laughs> Russell. Uh, there's, there's, there's getting kind of meta, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it really is. That's, that's <laughs> absolutely. But you know, yeah. some authors over the years, I'm sure you've read. I think it was P.D. James who said at some point, you know, I can't really think of Adam Dalgleish any longer without thinking of Roy Marsden. You know, in my head, it would be interesting as, you know, if they cast your character and the impact to you of that casting choice. Yeah, it would be, and I know that. Uh, Yes, a number of people who have had successful series uh, have found that it's difficult for them to. Um, who is the, who is the, uh, the, the Oxford? Um, oh, Morse. Morse. Uh, de- detective. Yeah. Yes, that John. Co- Colin John Dexter. Yeah. Yes, Colin Dexter, and it was what was the actor's name? John, John Faw. 
Thaw, thank you. Yeah. I, I keep thinking of his, him as Frost, but no, it's Thaw. <laughs> Jack Frost, yeah, that was um, his yeah. alter ego. Well, yeah. I mean, if you had your druthers, is there a particular actress you can think of who might be your ideal Mary Russell? Oh, I think that, you know, it's because she'd have to be young, it changes every few years because ah. it would be difficult to find somebody. <laughs> I remember a discussion Oh, it must have been 15 years ago or so, a discussion with the production company that they were they were talking about Jodie Foster. And I said, um, Jodie Foster is my age. And Wee. they said, oh, yes, but she reads young. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. There's a, there's a great compliment. Yeah. <laughs> okay, they clearly haven't actually read the books. Oh, well, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. I mean, Jodie Foster would have been great, you know, 50 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> I, I yeah. think back on one of those uh, discussion boards decades ago, I recall somebody mentioning Amy Adams as a potential. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, that's interesting. Yeah, I think that, as I say, every five years, whichever, um, whichever kind of vaguely physically correct young actress is there and um, people will say, Oh, she'd be great. He, sure. <laughs> so, but yeah, well, I'm just, I'm waiting for Angelina Jolie to play Miss Marple. After that, <laughs> it'll be uh, no holds barred for anything. There we go. There we go. Right. Why not? <laughs> so Lori, what's next for you? What are you working on now? Um, I am doing uh, the next Russell and Holmes. It'll be number nineteen for be out in twenty twenty five. It's uh, it's got a character that was oh, was mentioned once in a short story. It was somebody that Russell hadn't seen since she was a child. Her father's younger brother. Um, a ne'er-do-well and rogue named Uncle Jake. And this is Uncle Jake appears out of out of the mists and um, brings along a great deal of difficulty with him. <laughs> so I think, I think it's going to be a fun one. It's going to have a lot of um, hu- humor in it. So Excellent. Well, that sounds good. Um, forget it, Jake. It's Mary Russell. Um <laughs> <laughs> Going all Chinatown on you now. Well, Lori R. King, thank you so much for joining us here once again on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. You know, we do hear of Sherlock Everywhere, and I'm very glad to have have been able to stop in and visit. I'm... You always struck after these conversations about the the richness of so many of the people that we talk to, and talking to Lori, and you know, you're talking to a thoughtful, creative, professional person. But how interesting that in she was talking very early about the impact of those golden age stories, people like Dorothy Sayers in particular, um, and the voice of the characters and the richness of that literature. And it just calls to mind, you know, the craft and profession. Conan Doyle dismissed 
his, his Sherlock Holmes stories at various times as being carpenter work, or this case or that case is carpenter work. Um, because for him it was easy, and he had, had, had figured out you know, a method and a, a formula for doing this that worked time after time. But here's Laurie, who's brought to the character um, the planning, the professionalism, the writing talent, the heart, the appreciation, the value, valuing. You know, she's, she's dealing with these characters, and they're cherished. She cher- cherishes them in a way. And um, it's just so indicative of detective fiction and these kinds of stories at their very best, you know? Mm. Well, and I think that, that term, cherish, is, is exactly it. You know, she, she takes such care, and there's such thoughtfulness. It, it's not just a, uh, you know, a caricature of Sherlock Holmes, uh, or a caricature of a young woman. You know, she's deeply uh, involved in these characters and in their evolution. And um, you know, I <laughs> I hadn't thought of it before. You know, this uh, it coming to the Russell Holmes stories as a um, uh, you know as, as a new person to the stories, as an outsider, seeing a fifty-something Mary, you know, a late teenager that does seem a little creepy um it's i mean it it, obviously it happens or has happened over history quite a bit um but her description of it and and the evolution of these two characters together you know it makes it makes a heck of a lot of sense and her willingness to take Holmes from kind of a single or two-dimensional character and to really explore him um, you know, I, I was I was thinking during the interview of um, Charlie Chaplin's famous last marriage uh, when he was 50, 54, I think. He married Una O'Neill, who mm-hmm. was only eighteen, and the uh, the great description there was that he said to her, "Marry me, so I can." teach you how to live and you can teach me how to die. And she said, no, Charlie, I'm going to marry you. So you can teach, you can teach me how to grow up and I can teach you how to stay young. And I thought that, you know, that very difference in what we might externally view as kind of a two dimensional caricature of a May, December relationship versus what the, Characters in this case with Holmes and Russell, or uh, you know with the Chaplins, um, you know there, there's a there's a great deal of substance there. All right, it's time for everyone's favorite Sherlockian quiz show. That's right, it's time for Canonical Couplet, where we give you two lines of poetry. And we ask you to give us the Sherlock Holmes story that it is taken from. If you remember, around these parts, the last time we were here, we gave you this clue. When an old man's desire makes him climb a tree, Holmes thinks, you can't make a monkey out of me. Bert, (laughs) speaking of making monkeys... Uh, Do you know which Sherlock Holmes story we are talking about? 
Oh, come on. That's, that's one of Holmes's famous espionage cases. It's about the German spy who hid secrets in belly button-sized candies. It's the case Watson called The Adventure of the Naval Sweetie. <laughs> Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Oh, painful. <laughs> Pain. This is the painful predicament of Sherlock Holmes, I think William Gillette wrote about. Uh, no, unfortunately, that was not what we were looking for. We're going to turn to our friend Eric Deckers, who is always Hooray! helpful. Yeah. And um, this is going to be a bit of a change-up for Eric. He said, I searched and sought. I looked high and low. I read volumes of long-forgotten lore and spoke to sages. And as far as I could come up with, this is the adventure of words that don't have funny rhymes. Because this is the adventure of the blanched soldier. Oh, dear. Uh, Eric, I'm, I'm afraid you actually came up short this time. Oh, in, oh. in Doubly speaking, not, not only without your usual pun. But that is not the correct story. Good grief. This is, this is off-brand for Eric. I'm worried about him, Bert. <laughs> Should we send out a, a search party? Well, I'm sure he'll be back. I mean, he's just off, you know, slightly Goodness. off trail. But then you and I are both slightly off trail. We're trails. completely oh, off. We yeah, <laughs> off our rockers. Uh, uh -huh. Yes. Well, no, uh, Eric, the, uh, the answer we were looking for this time around is the creeping man. The creepy man, hence the, the monkey there. That was the clue. Um, but the good news is we had a number of other people who also submitted their answers, their correct answers. So we're going to bring in the big prize wheel and give it a spin. Watching it go around, uh, landing on number 24. And that looks like it is uh, well, Jim Purcell. Yay! Jim from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Congratulations to you, Jim. And I should note that last summer, uh, Jim wrote into us, Bert, to make a surprising admission. I, I, you know, speaking of people who uh, mm. may be a little off kilter, he said, I just wanted to mention that I recently finished binge listening to all 267 episodes of iHose. I did a couple a day to make work a bit more bearable. <laughs> the show's very enjoyable. Bert's sense of humor is always good for a laugh, but I learned a lot. Thank you for your efforts. Mm. That's Thank so nice. Normally, when we get notes <laughs> from people who say they've listened to the entire IHO's canon, it's usually accompanied by a subpoena. <laughs> and this, this is really refreshing. You know, or not to or have a medical bill action. from the people that pass out from having fallen asleep while walking, <laughs> yes. listening to us. Yes. Uh, it's, it's a dangerous game we set really? ourselves up in. Well, uh, Jim, the good news is we have a, uh, a, a little tchotchke for you, a little something from the IHO's vaults. I'm thinking, I wonder if we had scared something up from the BSI weekend or not. But either way, we'll have something headed your way fairly soon. So stay tuned for that. And in the meantime... The rest of you, get to work, get your pencils out, and get ready, because here is this episode's canonical couplet clue. A Christmas tale, one of the best produced, left 
the sad culprit permanently goosed. If you know the answer to this episode's canonical couplet, put it in an email addressed to comment at IHearOfSherlock.com with canonical couplet in the subject line. If you're among all of the correct answers and we choose you at random, you'll win. Good luck. And we will have a copy of Laurie R. King's new book available for you. So you'll want to get right on that. Hmm. 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 Well, Bert, you know what time it is. Yeah, it's a quarter after four, I think. Uh, no. It's time for the news. Hooray! News, sports, weather, and traffic on the threes here on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. No, it's yes. all the Sherlockian news that we feel is appropriate. Uh, you want to lead us off. The news. Well, the Sherlock Holmes Society of London is planning their next excursion. They're off to India in 2025 from February 22nd to March 9th, 2025. And we will have in the show notes a link to their downloadable and colorful brochure. And now is the time to be thinking seriously about joining them and expressing your interest in all of that information you could find at the link. Now, that could be fascinating. We know the, the Sherlock Holmes Society of London does these excursions uh, every few years. They've gone to Switzerland a number of times. Um, I, do, do you know where else they've gone? Yeah, I think you have the full history. Well, they've been, you know, lots of places in the UK. You know, they've had uh, yeah. uh, great jaunts to different parts of the country with with canonical themed weekends and events um but know, on the continent i don't recall where else they've been on switzerland's the really the, the the big one because they do they they repeat that every so often uh, i don't know if it's every decade or so but uh, and it's usually a you know an all-out effort people are in full costume and uh you know there's obviously stops along the way uh it's uh, really something to behold and, and the write-ups afterward are lovely. The, obviously, papers are given along the way as well. Um, so this, this trip to India should be uh, another memorable one. Mm. Um, it'll be interesting to see if you'll have the opportunity to have your legs snapped off by a crocodile in the Ganges. That's part of the Jonathan Small side excursion, I think. Um, okay, we also have... Uh, manuscript news. It's always interesting to see when a Sherlock Holmes manuscript goes up for auction. And last year, Sotheby's auctioned off uh, four pages of the manuscript of The Crooked Man. That's all that was known to survive of that manuscript. Uh, and I believe the auction went for over $95,000 for those four pages last July. And it looks like whoever uh, <laughs> whoever bought that is uh, of an enterprising bent, because now one of the four pages is being sent to auction at RR Auction in Amherst, New Hampshire. Uh, auction's taking place on February 22nd, and the estimate for that single page is $40,000. Mm. Oh, that's... Uh, Maybe this is a, a new business people are going into, manuscript flipping, you know, like house flipping. 
So you can read about that page, what's on it. I believe it is the page that has elementary on it, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. Uh, that that phrase where uh, it's not elementary, my dear Watson, but it just says elementary. Uh, you can check that out at Randall Stock's Best of Sherlock website. Hmm. One of the interesting things, and I always pronounce, I think his name wrong, but it is, um, yeah, yeah, it's basically Hayao Miyazaki. Oh no, yeah, Hayao Miyazaki. Hayao Miyazaki, right? Hayo but it's anime's 40th Miyazaki. anniversary. And in that honor, Hayao Miyazaki's animated series, Sherlock Hound, is returning to Japanese theaters in fully remastered HD. Mm. And this was originally broadcast on uh, TV. And Sherlock Holmes adapted the, the characters. Sherlock Hound adapted these characters for a younger audience as canines. And now uh, the series is getting a limited theatrical run in 2024 from March 22nd to April 18th. So their digitally remastered versions of the two compilation films will be screened at different venues across Japan. But these are also available in the States, although I don't remember exactly where. I know they were released in uh, late 2022 in Blu-ray in the United States. And that, that version included both the English track and the original Japanese language track. But it's a, it's a wonderful um, feature, and it goes back to the 1980s. It was released originally in November of 1986. And so for those people who are fascinated by anime, this is a great opportunity, particularly if you're in Japan, to see... Um, this remarkable Sherlock Hound. Yeah, it looks like it's going to be screened at some 117 theaters throughout Japan, and tickets cost 1,600 yen for adults and 1,000 yen for children. Hmm. That's about $10.88 U.S. dollars and uh, $6.80. It's a bargain. So that's a good deal. That's a good deal. And for those of you, uh, you know, the, the 1980s, wonderful time to be a Sherlock Holmes fan. Of course, you had the Jeremy Brett Granada series uh, that was seemingly everywhere. But you also had uh, Basil of Baker Street making its way to the, the animated screen, thanks to Disney. And uh, I believe in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, the, the uh, character Wishbone on public television in the United States made an appearance as Sherlock Holmes as well. So this notion of uh, animation and animals playing their part in Sherlock Holmes is a fun one. Okay, closing up the news bag. Always a good thing. So, Bert... Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and any any plans between now and Valentine's Day? <laughs> between now and Valentine's Day. Uh, oh, I expect these two weeks will be filled with me cutting out my little my little uh, Valentine's Day cards <laughs> and driving around the neighborhood and putting them in the mailboxes of uh, all of my friends to, who I hope remember me. 
And then sadly, I'll have my usual Charlie Brown experience next to my empty mailbox <laughs> with only bills from the from the power company and uh, that usual that usual sad look from the postman or postperson who realizes that again I've been disappointed as I am annually. And that's what I dislike most. You know, the pity. The pity, postal pity, is probably the worst kind of pity. Postal pity. <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, here's one for our listeners. We we want to celebrate Valentine's Day, too. And we will have a series of Sherlockian Valentines, courtesy of James O'Leary. Uh, and James has the investiture in the Baker Street Irregular. Uh, James, the son of the Grimpen Postmaster. Uh, because he works in the Postal Service. So uh, he, uh, he brainstormed and came up with some Sherlockian Valentines. You want to make sure you get to our website, uh, IHearOfSherlock.com, and uh, make sure you're signed up for updates there. And we'll have them available to our Patreon supporters as well. We'll automatically shoot those out to you, so check that out. And, and Bert, I should mention that this is the time of the year when I have my annual rereading uh, in honor of Valentine's Day, of um, uh, the Bruce Partington plans. Oh. Very important to connect that with Valentine's Day. Yes. Absolutely. Do you know why? Yes, because of the name of the evildoer. Who? Valentine Walter. Oh, was that it? I, th- yeah. I thought it's because my love interests are always befogged. <laughs> And my jokes are clearly underwater. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, Colonel Valentine Walter. That's our that's our connection to Valentine's Day. Well done. Mm-hmm. You're much better here than you are during the quiz, I must say. <laughs> why, why can't you bring that Bert to canonical a, couplets? I knew I was better somewhere, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the always improving Scott Monty. And I'm just the consistently average Burt Wolder. And together, we say, The The Game's game's Afoot. Afoot. (laughs) The The Game's game's Afoot! You know, I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be, my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes.